With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. One for podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon, live from the DraftKings Sportsbook and Wild Rose Studio. This is Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. All right, Miller and Condon, welcome back. 11 o'clock hour, Matt Poston's bottom of the hour, the governor of Iowa with Kim Reynolds right now. Uh, today. Today we have 534 new positive cases for a total of 9,703 positive cases. 85% of today's positive cases are from the 22 counties where restrictions remain in place. We had 3,441 new negative cases for a total of 47,458. I am so sorry to report that four more Iowans have passed away Sadly, uh, deaths continue to be consistently among older adults and those with underlying conditions, many of them in our long-term care facilities. The Department of Public Health has confirmed one additional long-term care facility outbreak, Acura Healthcare of Marshalltown in Marshall County. We have 57,161 total tests have been conducted in Iowa for a per capita rate of one in 55 Iowans have been tested. We have 3,486 Iowans that are now recovered for a recovery rate of 36%. On Friday, I updated you about a backlog in reporting case counts last week due to the high volume of tests generated from surveillance testing at long-term care facilities and manufacturing facilities and the launch of Test Iowa in Des Moines and Waterloo. And as we expected, the data entry work was caught up over the weekend and the numbers reported were higher than usual. On Saturday, we reported 757 new positive cases and 3,377 new negative cases for a total of 4,134 daily tests ran. On Sunday, we reported 528 new positive cases, 2,932 new negative cases for a total of 3,460 daily cases. For a total number of tests run last last week of 17,098. There's um, a significant accomplishment. That's a significant accomplishment, and we're working hard to improve the timeliness of processing and reporting results so that Iowans know the results as soon as possible. And again, I want to just give a tremendous shout-out to the team at the State Hygienic Lab. They are working around the clock to catch up and process the test so we can be back on track. So just a great, great effort uh, by that team at the State Hygienic Lab. Last week, I also shared that there was a delay with some of the test Iowa results. 
Under normal circumstances, individuals should get their test results in approximately 72 hours. But because of the high volume of tests being processed at the State Hygienic Lab uh, last week and the ongoing validation process for Test Iowa, we weren't able to meet the timeline that time frame for some Iowans. I know waiting for test results is difficult, and I'm sorry um, for any concern that this may have caused you. I want to again reassure Iowans that this is a short-term issue as we ramp up testing and processing and complete the Test Iowa validation process, which again, that is just standard any time that a new test is introduced at a lab. I am glad to report that many of you did receive your results over the weekend, but if you were tested later last week, yours may still be on the way. So please continue to watch your email for information about your results. And until you know your test results, it's important that you stay home. By isolating yourself at home, you'll reduce the risk of potentially exposing others to the virus. And if your condition has worsened since you were tested, please uh, call your doctor to seek medical attention or call 911 if you're having trouble breathing when you're at rest. Today, I um, also want to take this opportunity to recognize our heroes in public service. You may not be aware of this, but this week is Public Service Recognition Week. It's a time set aside to honor the men and women who serve our nation as federal, state, county, and local government employees. This year, it's especially fitting to recognize the employees of our state agencies, many of whom are serving on the front lines in response to COVID-19, to the COVID-19 pandemic pandemic. Each have made significant contributions to mitigating and managing the virus and protecting the health and livelihoods of Iowans, and they have worked countless hours. From the Department of Public Health for its incredible leadership throughout this crisis, to the Department of Human Services for ensuring Iowans still have access to the services that they need, to the Department of Education for keeping students, families, and schools connected, to the Iowa National Guard and the Homeland Security and Department of Public Safety, for your commitment to serving Iowans whenever and wherever it's asked of you. To the Department of Corrections and Iowa Prison Industry for stepping up to supplement Iowa's PPE supply when we needed it most. To the Department of Transportation for their role in coordinating test Iowa sites. To the Iowa Workforce Development, the Iowa Economic Development Authority, and the Department of Revenue for helping Iowans and Iowa small businesses get back on their feet. And to all of my other agencies and my own team, a very heartfelt thank you. And also to the incredible partnerships at our local level, especially with our local public health officials, our local emergency management, and our county and city government leaders. Something of this magnitude requires an all-team effort, and Iowans can be proud knowing that those who, ser- those who serve you are working hard as a united front in your best interest. So to all of those in public service, again, my heartfelt gratitude for a job well done and for your continued partnerships as we begin to move forward and bring back Iowa even stronger. One great example of how state and local entities have worked together over the last several weeks is our strike teams. As you've heard, strike teams of nurses from the Department of Public Health, the Department of Human Services, and the Department of Inspection and Appeals are conducting surveillance testing among essential employees in communities or facilities where virus activity is high. By working with essential businesses, excuse me, businesses to offer diagnostic and serology testing of their employees. 
We've, we have an opportunity to identify and isolate positive cases, conduct case investigations, to track the virus activity and to better understand the scope, which ultimately helps us contain and manage the spread. And it also provides great reassurance to the employees that their workplace is safe. This week, we'll be sending strike teams to several more long-term care and manufacturing facilities and providing testing supplies for others to test approximately 5,700 more employees to be proactive in managing activity. Once the virus is in any facility, congregate setting, or even households where many people work in close proximity or live to, um, with each other, it spreads quickly and it spreads easily. And that's what we're trying to get in front of by conducting targeted diagnostic and serology testing of um, employees at businesses and long-term care uh, facilities where the stakes are high. It also, as I said, provides confidence for essential workforce, helps keep our businesses operating, and protects um, our most vulnerable population. This week, um, the Department of Human Services did confirm that a resident at the Woodward um, Resource Center tested positive for COVID-19. This is the first positive case at any of our DHS six facilities, and I've asked um, Director of the Department of Human Services, Director Garcia, to provide an update on the steps taken. Director Garcia. Thank you, Governor, for having me here today. First, I want to acknowledge uh, this highly contagious nature of COVID-19. We knew it would be a matter of when, not if, we had a confirmed positive um, in any of our six facilities. We're doing everything we can to protect our team and those we serve. Nine DHS employees who work at five of our six campuses have tested positive to date. Because of our policies, many of these employees were not on site. Several days before they received a positive test and most had no client interaction. I'm happy to share that all of our team members are doing well at this time and we continue to check in on them frequently. Additionally, as the governor mentioned, I'm sad to report that as of today, six residents at the Woodward Resource Center have tested positive. A resident at Woodward Resource Center who was presumptively positive on April 25th was confirmed positive by the State Hygienic Lab on May 1st. This was the first resident to test positive at any of our facilities. And as a precaution, we tested all residents in this individual's home who were asymptomatic at the time. To protect other residents in the home, those who test positive or become symptomatic are transitioned to other houses on campus uh, designated for positive cases. We've been working closely with IDPH, Boone County Public Health, and we've also pulled in a team of doctors for additional technical assistance from the University of Iowa. Before any confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state of Iowa, DHS began analyzing our operations across the agency. We focus much of our preparedness and response efforts on our facilities. Throughout this pandemic, I've talked with facility leadership twice daily. Not, not dissimilar to long-term care facilities, our staff are in close contact with some of Iowa's most vulnerable individuals, and we have undertaken significant efforts to keep everyone safe. On March 10th, DHS provided its first COVID-19 protocols. We limited travel and we implemented prevention measures. On March 12th, we began screening visitors and that very next day on March 13th, we suspended in-person visitation. We knew that our 
existing PPE stock would be would not be enough. And so we ramped up efforts to find supply. Our fiscal management team has worked tirelessly over the past several weeks to ensure we have additional masks of all kinds, gowns, face shields, and other critical items. On March 15th, we began daily screenings at all of our facilities of both staff and residents for signs and symptoms of COVID-19, including temperature checks. If a resident spikes a fever or otherwise showed symptoms, they were tested. On April 1st, all resource center staff began wearing masks in patient areas and effective April 25th, all staff at all facilities wear masks at all times. Our goal has been to create an environment that when staff become ill, they feel supported, they notify us, they stay home, and they seek testing. We will continue to follow strict protocols to prevent the further spread of this virus. To the residents, their guardians, and loved ones, and to my team, I want you to know that we will use every tool at our disposal to ensure you are supported through this time. And I want to send a special recognition to my team as well during Public Service Recognition Week, which now takes on a new meaning. I'm grateful to our entire team for the tremendous work they're doing. This work is challenging and often not for the faint of heart. And now more than ever, it requires compassion, humility, and courage. And I can tell you with zero hesitation that I'm seeing this every day. Many of our staff continue to serve on the front lines. I'm especially moved by our fellow team members, our nurses who have volunteered to assist the state in our testing and our team members who have, have assisted in contact tracing efforts. I always tell them, if not us, then who? Team DHS is dedicated to helping Iowans in need, and even in the face of a pandemic, our team goes above and beyond. So to my team, thank you for stepping up. Thank you for leaning in. And to my fellow Iowans, I ask you to join me in thanking them and thank all of your public servants in your life and essential workforce during Public Service Recognition Week. Thank you, Governor. Thanks, Kelly. And again, I just appreciate so much all your team has done to serve Iowans throughout this uh, really, really challenging time. And I know that there is a deep commitment uh, to protect the health of the individuals cared for in our state's facilities. And I want to especially thank the teams um, there for all that they do day in and day out to protect um, those residents. In closing, I also want to thank the Test Iowa team. Today, our third location opens in Sioux City. This has been a tremendous effort in a short amount of time, and it's going to make a big difference for Iowans. So again, thank you for your time and effort in making our rapid statewide implementation um, possible. So with that, we will open it up for questions. Governor, have any of the test Iowa machines at the State Hygienic Lab been validated and approved for use? Are they being used to process tests? And where's the money coming from to hire the people at the test Iowa sites to actually do the testing? Yeah, so so we have been able to run some of the test Iowa tests through the state hygienic lab using some of the test Iowa equipment and the state hygienic lab equipment. We're still working to validate the PCR process, so they're still working on that. They've made tremendous progress uh, over the weekend, but we also had to allocate a lot of the time to process the backlog, so they've been able to address both, and that's what I mean. It's been just a heroic effort by everyone uh, at the facility. So as I've said before, the guard is, is the ones that is um, 
instrumental in helping us set up the test Iowa sites, as well as Homeland Security, the Department of Transportation. We have used nurses from the Department of uh, human services and then we've also we're contracting uh, with some uh, nurses that have been furloughed to use at some of the test Iowa sites so that's a partnership that we have with a couple of our hospitals which has been great and then of course we did a, a press conference on ISERV so there's there's nurses out there that just simply want to volunteer so they've also been a part of the test Iowa setup and so remember you know we've got uh, CARES money coming into the state to help really pay for some of the testing capacity that we've done so we can run it through FEMA, which is a 75-25, and that encumbers everything that we're doing uh, for the increased testing ability. That's LabCorp, that's the national labs, that's what we're doing at the state hygienic lab, and then test Iowa. So some funding is, well, we can put process some of the funding through that, 75-25, we're hoping to get it 100% funded, and then in addition to that, there's also just some specific funding through the CARES Act for, for testing, because they're really wanting states to ramp that up. Governor, res referencing the backlog, um, we've spoken to a couple of Iowans who were tested on April 25 that still haven't gotten the results back. Yeah. Um, I have to test Iowa site. How big is this backlog and what percentage of the total test Iowa? Yeah, so we got about 900 to 1,000 through yesterday from the test Iowa, and we should complete the backlog today. So then we'll be back on track. Uh, you saw the numbers from the weekend. They were really able to process a lot of the test and to get us caught up. And so then we should be in a pretty good place uh, moving forward as we just start to continue to build out the test Iowa sites. Again, I talked about you know using other uh, labs as well with LabCorp and then a Another component of this is the serology testing that we're doing too. Uh, we're one of the few states that are doing that as part of our surveillance testing with our long-term care facilities and some of our manufacturing facilities. And that really does help, um, again, just address some of the individuals that were asymptomatic, didn't even know that they had it, but actually have and have recovered. And so that's a part of, that helps us really uh, um, identify the scope of the virus activity in each one of the facilities and really take the steps that we need to to separate those that have tested positive and negative or um, were asymptomatic and tested positive through the serology testing. Governor, we get a lot of questions, as you might guess, about Test Iowa. How can the public know when these daily reports come out, what came through a Test Iowa side, what came through others, yeah. and then also who had shown symptoms, who had not. Yeah, to so show kind of the broader picture. Yeah, from the very and I might let Sarah talk about this, but from the very beginning, we didn't separate out the different testing um, opportunities. I mean, we've been using the first; it was the the national labs, and then we've had hospitals and uh, that have come on board, and they're able now, uh, once they were validated, to actually do the test and then process it right at their facility. Um, and so, test Iowa would be no different. So we really never have broken those out. We've reported total test total tested positive and total tested negative, and I really don't anticipate changing uh, that process. Do you have anything to add to that, sir? The only thing that I would add is, you know, we do have, we have health systems doing testing. We have national labs doing testing, just to the governor's point. And I can tell you, I've spoken personally with Dr. Pentella. He's not going to run equipment if he doesn't have confidence in 
the the equipment and its performance. And so there'd be no reason um, to separate out test Iowa results separate from any other test results because the, the test Iowa equipment is going through the exact same kind of validation that all of the other tests that are happening have done. And so we'll just continue to report positive test results regardless of the source as uh, one positive number. How will the public know whether test Iowa is as accurate as everything else is? Well, we do that through the validation process. And so um, just like they um, validated the state hygienic lab through the CDC process, then we'll use that same process to validate test Iowa. And I have complete confidence in Dr. Pantella and the state hygienic lab uh, to uh, complete the process. They're not going to, they're not going to validate it until there is, as Sarah said, in there, until they're comfortable uh, that it meets the criteria that it needs to meet. When you take a strep throat test, there's a high negative, and often they run it again through a different kind of test and call you later and say, actually, you do have strep throat. Mm -hmm. um, are you, read the, the negatives, are you in any way reaching out to them and encouraging them to run it separately if, as suspected, some of these Abbott machines have a 15% neg uh, false negative? Well, Sarah, yeah, that might be just outside of my scope of expertise. You know, okay, what I would say about that is I, if somebody's had a negative test, if they are still feeling ill, if they need to go to their doctor, they should continue to seek health care. If they continue to worsen, if they continue to be symptomatic, if you are sick, and you have had a negative test, that doesn't mean that you should not seek health care. You should call your doctor's office, see if you need to be reevaluated, and every Iowan should do that all of the time if they're not feeling well. So we spoke to, uh, along those lines, um, sorry, Senator, we spoke to the family of a man who tried multiple times to get health care, tried to get tests. Eventually, he was able to get a positive test for COVID, but he sadly passed away as a result. What does that say about kind of the structure that the state has set up for providing tests and the healthcare system for providing care to individuals who may have COVID? Well, first of all, any any death is heartbreaking, and I can't imagine the grief that the wife is going through. So, you know, anybody that has lost their life to COVID-19 is just horrible. But as we've said all along, if you have symptoms in your home, uh, call your doctor. They will run through you uh, with you an assessment and make the determination, the physician, the clinic, whether you should be tested or not. But like any other um, time that you visit the doctor, if you're not satisfied with what they tell you if you're still feeling sick or ill I would encourage Iowans to get a second opinion if you believe that you know you have been exposed or that you are demonstrating symptoms and you go to a clinic and and they don't test you then I would get a I would encourage um, Iowans to get a second opinion um, and to can you you know these are the like, test Iowa is a tool it's an it's on top of all of the other testing options that Sarah was talking about but you know again just reiterate over and over if you're feeling sick or you're exhibiting some of the systems or you think that you've been uh, exposed, then, you know, call your doctor, walk through them what you're experiencing, and then they will make the decision on, you know, what you should, what you should do. Aaron Murphy, Lee News. Uh, thank you, Governor. Uh, you said this morning on a conference call with other governors talking about um, uh, reopening strategies that the next phase in your strategy for the state is growth. I was just hoping for some clarification on what you meant by that. Are you talking about economic growth or are you 
um, actively considering lifting restrictions in more counties or lifting more restrictions? No. So, you know, we talked I talked on the call here, we kind of had three phases. Stabilization was really about mitigation and it was about resources. And so that's why you remember I talked about putting the RMCC into place. We wanted to, first of all, make sure that we were protecting our most vulnerable Iowans, that we were managing our resources so that we could start to flatten the curve and not overwhelm our hospital system. And today, we have over 4,000 beds available. We have over 550 ICU beds and over 650 uh, vents. So we've been able, with the good work of Iowans, by really being responsible and doing what they've needed to do, we've been able to demonstrate, you know, not only statewide but by region, that we have the capacity to treat COVID-19 and, in fact, have, uh, you know, pretty good um, excess of beds and vents uh, and ICU beds across the state, which is good. And I just, un unprecedented uh, collaboration from our hospitals all across the state. I appreciate the efforts that they put into this for daily reporting so that we can have some sense of usage and, and um, discharge and where we're at as we move forward. So I appreciate that. And because of that, then we really moved from mitigation efforts into uh, easing some of those mitigation restrictions and we moved more into a containment and management of virus activity and so that's where we're at right now. So that's where we started to um, ease some of the mitigation efforts that we put in place for Iowa's 77 counties. Uh, we still have some pretty significant protocols put in place as we start to open up restaurants and fitness centers and some of our retail outlets and and elective uh, procedures, opening up them. There's still a lot of um, parameters that they have to abide by in order to do that. And so we'll watch that and we're hoping as we can use the test, the assessment, the testing and the case investigation, we'll start to continue to watch counties and see if there's maybe additional counties that we can bring on or maybe there's additional um, things that we can start to open up. But we'll do that on a daily, weekly. I think the declaration or the proclamation that I have in place right now goes through May 15th, so we're going to continue to evaluate and see, see what's next. In the meantime, later this week, I'll be talking about the Governor's Economic Recovery Task Force, and that's really bringing individuals together to really understand the impact that COVID-19 has had uh, on Iowans, our families, our businesses, in our state economy, looking at how we react to that and come back uh, even better and stronger and maybe redefine some of the ways in which we are serving Iowans uh, through what we've learned through this pandemic and just apply some of those strategies to really, you know, moving from um, stabilization to recovery now into growth. And so we're going to put a great team together uh, that's going to really analyze that, put some metrics in place and talk about how we start to, um, after we get through the growth phase, uh, start to um, open up and uh, grow uh, Iowa's economy. Chris, KCCI. Hi there. Uh, so the Tyson plant in Perry, Tyson still refuses to release numbers of infections there, and numerous local officials there in the city of Perry have called for Tyson to do so, and the Dallas County Health Department won't release the numbers either. Do you believe it's in the public interest for the public to know those numbers is the dph willing to release those you want to talk about that we're actually meeting this afternoon 
Um, hi, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, the Department of Public Health, um, working with our state medical director, um, we have, there's a state statute that talks that ref talks about her ability to release information related to names of businesses when it's in the interest of the public's health. And so we've been having those conversations in terms of what is that threshold for identifying an outbreak at a particular business. And that's actually one of the things that um, we'll be confirming today uh, in terms of where we have seen outbreaks and um, whether it's in the public's interest for us to release the names of those businesses at this time. So I think it's actively on the to-do list for today and we'll have more information for you in the next couple of days. What's the criteria for saying if something is a public interest, if a business is an outbreak? Mm -hmm. So for businesses, it's um, for 10% of their workforce has been identified to be either um, COVID positive or has been in close contact with somebody who has identified to be positive for COVID. And those hard and fast? The 10% thresholds. Yeah, those thresholds. Yeah, that's been the thread. That's been the legal threshold that we've determined working with Dr. Padati to identify those businesses. And so we'll be taking a look at our information and, and be prepared to make that public in the next couple of days. Thank you. Nicole. And we have made it clear where we're doing the testing. So we've talked about the different facilities all the way through that we were actually doing some of the surveillance testing. And so we've been pretty transparent about that. And as Sarah indicated, we'll be addressing the other in the next day or two. We've got time for two more questions. Nicole, KCRG. Governor, what will the threshold be to increase restrictions on the 77 open counties? For example, five days ago, Wapalo County in Southeast Iowa had 15 cases. Today they've reported 84 cases and they announced the first death related to the virus over the weekend and only eight people there have recovered. Does that rapidly growing case count concern you? Well, we're going to continue to watch it on a daily basis, and I, you know, with the testing capacity that we have, with the assessment, and then with the case investigation and the contact tracing, it really does allow us to uh, look at uh, some of the spike in in cases, not only from a state but county to a community to even down to a zip code, so that we can start to monitor that and address it in a fairly rapid way, so that we can hopefully prevent seeing a significant spike. So we're going to continue to monitor the counties across the state. Remember, as I said earlier, they still have pretty significant controls in place uh, for businesses that are starting to open up. And what I've seen, even from, you know, businesses and restaurants and churches, they really are being very judicious and thoughtful in starting to open back up some of their businesses and churches. They just, uh, they're putting protocols in place. They want to make sure that they um, are um, giving the consumers confidence to come back into their facility. Uh, they want to make sure that they're not putting their congregation in any danger. And so what I've seen as we've started to, you know, loosen and ease some of the restrictions is a great deal of responsibility being taken by the businesses and the entities that we've started to open up just a little bit. And I appreciate that very much. So we're going to continue to identify clusters or areas of concern. We'll do the, the case investigation and that'll allow us to really figure out who's been in contact, what is the exposure rate, and can we contain it, or are there additional steps that we may need to take? All right, Miller and Condon, uh, that was uh, Governor Kim Reynolds' press conference here. Uh, by the way, KXNO has had a, uh, a $1,000 winner. It's, they, these things come in threes? Oh, you're, you're already calling. Well, that's an opportunity right now. We're looking for our second winner at KXNO as the uh, Saturday morning pregame uh, got us on the board. KXNO and iHeart want to help you with your bills. Text the keyword 
care to 200 200 right now your chance to win a thousand that's care to 200 200 you'll get a confirmation text and info standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest matt poston's heartland college sports in the maven cowboys site when we return as we take you until noon on des moines sports station 1460 kx and 0 our mission Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Hi, Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. Final segment here on a Monday. Let's get into a Trent Condon. He is Matt Poston's Heartland College Sports and the Maven Cowboy site, and he joins the program. A lot of ground to cover uh, with Matt, and appreciate you coming on. How are you, Matt Poston's? Hey, I'm good. I'm in my eighth week of working from home, and I love it. Isn't it? Yeah, I can get used to it, right? But you gotta you got to stay diligent. That's what I found. Anyways, lots to get to. Let's start with the Cowboys, first of all. Uh, I love their draft, by the way, and I think it's uh, terrific that C.D. Lamb's getting the 88 following uh, Des Bryant, before him, Michael Irvin, and way, way back for uh, for Drew uh, Pearson. Uh, some uh, famous, uh, some terrific players wore that number. C.D. Lamb has a chance to be the next one. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, he said on draft night he actually wanted to wear a number 10. But uh, I don't know if Jerry talked him into it or the Cowboys talked him into it. But, I mean, when you look at that wide receiver room now uh, with C.D. Lamb, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, uh, they're pretty stacked. Uh, Mike McCarthy likes to run a lot of three wide receiver sets, and he's got the ammunition now to uh, take Dak Prescott in this offense uh, from a passing standpoint to another level. And you got to remember – you know, Prescott threw for more than 4,000 yards last year. So uh, if there's a level up, it's going to be very fun to see it. Well, one of the most fun things to see was Jerry Jones's yacht yeah, really. during the draft. I mean, that thing was absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, there's been so many arrows slung, certainly nationally, about Jerry Jones, the general manager, and the way the organization is run. You go through here, and I know it is hard to grade a draft right afterwards, but it really felt like not just the C.D. Lamb pick, but getting Diggs in the second round, mm-hmm. getting Gallimore from Oklahoma, I think is going to be outstanding. Me too. Another big man from Wisconsin to run the middle there, as they did with Frederick for a number of years years late in the draft it just felt like this organization it feels like they're finding their path now even though it's not the traditional way of building a football team yeah yeah i gave it an a and when you think about it six of the seven players that they drafted were on the top 100 uh overall for either espn.com or the athletic so they got talent all the way down all the way into the sixth uh sixth seventh round uh with the guys they selected you know the Cowboys decided about seven, eight years ago that they were going to start building this team around the trenches, you know, offensive line and defensive line. And they finally made a decision to build an identity around that. And when you look at what they've done on offense, you know, Ezekiel Elliott has two rushing titles. They've got one of the most talented offensive lines in the league. Uh, they've helped uh, protect Dak Prescott and keep him from injury for four straight years. Uh, the defense has been a bit more of a work in progress, but this is a team that has a philosophy now. You know, 10, 15 years ago, you could easily argue that they didn't have one, and they have one now. And this draft was really about the scouting department, their VP for player personnel, Will McClay, and everybody being on the same page because after the combine, they didn't get any in-person work with these teams at pro days, you know, Dallas days, bringing them to the facility, et cetera. 
They had to rely on tape. They had to rely on their scouts. They had to rely on their board. And they very much stuck to their board throughout the draft. That's why they took Lamb when they fell to him. That's why they traded up to get Biedosh when they did in the fourth round. And, you know, all around, all the way through, they they slung arrows and they hit the bullseye every time. Yeah, Biedosh, good player Wisconsin. I think he was the second-ranked center behind the uh, the kid from LSU who went to Denver uh, in round three. But it was close. It depends what draft guru you uh, you read as to whom they had ranked at the center position. Uh, I do want to, uh, before we get into the Big 12 with you, obviously the news from the weekend, Andy Dalton. I don't think a lot of people saw this one coming. Most of say, well, there's Belichick's quarterback. Well, he's going to the Jags uh, because of the relationship there, and they Gardner Minshew might be the guy, but he might not be, and Andy Dalton might be better. But Andy Dalton's in Dallas. I think this is a great pickup. Um, Andy Dalton, I think, gets an unfair amount of arrows slung his way. I mean, for crying out loud, he played for the Bengals. And has he got the Bengals to the playoffs more than people realize? I love this signing. Yeah, I do too. You know, nine years in Cincinnati, four playoff appearances, four playoff wins. Um, he won 70 games there. This is all about making sure they have a backup plan in case Dak Prescott gets hurt. This is not about Dalton coming in and competing for the starting job. There's been a lot of noise about that from people on Twitter the last couple of days. That's not what this signing is about. Jerry's paying $3 million in base salary and potentially $7 million in incentives to make sure they have a backup plan in case Dak Prescott gets hurt. And the only way that to me, Andy Dalton plays this year is if A, Prescott gets hurt, or B, the Cowboys are up 30 in the fourth quarter. I mean, you could create nightmare scenarios where Dak Prescott decides to hold out, and if he does, that's fine. You got Andy Dalton to put in his place. It's a great position to be, certainly, and, and a guy that still has, I think, some good football in front of him in Andy Dalton. Maybe not a guy you can win a Super Bowl, but... He took Cincinnati to the playoffs five different times. I think that goes a really far, far way. We're talking right now to Matt Poston's Heartland College Sports, also with the Maven. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the extra, the another gig that you're adding to the resume. Oh, I, I'm working, I'm still working with Mike Fisher. We were over at 24 7 Sports and we've mm-hmm. moved over to uh, Cowboy Maven, which is part of the SI Maven network now, uh, covering the Cowboys along with Matt Gallison and uh, Bria Matt and Marathas. Uh, we were we had more than a, a million page views uh, during the uh, draft weekend with our draft coverage. Uh, we were all over the place uh, covering the draft, and you know as things continue to gear up with the Cowboys, wherever this crazy year and season takes us, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be following along with the Cowboys. So you can follow us. Uh, at uh, SICowboys.com. Well, we'll be following along this week. We'll find out who they're going to face on Thanksgiving. Always one of the highlights for me schedule-wise. Those are the ones I look for first. I go to Thanksgiving. I want to see the primetime games along the way and what they're doing on those Saturdays in December. But we know where the Cowboys will be at 3.30 or thereabouts on uh, Thanksgiving afternoon. Matt, let's get into the Big 12. And, and what, if anything, you're hearing there's... I mean, the Big 12 is in the south. They're in the middle part of the country. And they come all the way... To, north as far as Ames and which leads me to my you know can you really see this starting late December November and carrying over into the spring considering some of the outposts uh, that make up the Big 12 I think that that would be a uh, far-fetched in my opinion can you see that as that being talked about I, I think that might be a last resort. And, you know, Bob Bowlesby had a, a expansive interview with Sirius XM on Thursday, and he basically said, we're talking about everything right now. We're talking about split season. We're talking about starting in January. We're talking about this. We're talking about that. But what I thought was interesting about that interview was he said he's feeling a bit more confident that they can either start the season on time or maybe start it with a short delay. 
you know, maybe like in mid-September. What he's now more concerned about is if they do start the season on time, is that if this virus does make a comeback, as many virologists have said it will in the winter, you may start the season, but does that mean you'll end the season? And if you can't end the season, then how do you decide championships? How do you decide, you know, if, if you know, there, may, there could be teams, in the, they could decide, let's just say for the sake of argument, Bowles, they said they could decide to do a conference-only schedule in the Big 12 and play nine games. Well, what happens if a, a, a person at TCU who deals with the football team tests positive for the virus and West Virginia isn't comfortable coming to play them this weekend? Does that mean it's a forfeit for West Virginia? Does that mean it's a forfeit for TCU? Does that mean it's a no game? Do you end up in situations where you have a team like Oklahoma that plays eight games and maybe a team like you know, TCU that plays six games but they've only got one loss each? How do you decide those things? So they're running through all these permutations right now, and nobody's, nobody has a good answer yet, but I think by June, you know, as, as states start opening up and we start getting more data on infections and things like that and other months' worth of data, I think by June we'll have a better idea of how everybody, you know, across the country is going to handle this. And one other thing I heard earlier this week is that it may not be – it's not going to be necessarily an NCAA decision. Conferences may decide to do different things, mm-hmm. and that will lead to, you know, FBS trying to balance out, you know, what makes the most sense in terms of fairness across the board. Gene Taylor, the athletic director at Kansas State, laid out seven different ways that they are playing, uh, looking at this, different things that can go there. And it's the great unknown. I mean, you can come up with a way that you're going to do it, roll it out here in early June, something like that, about a month from now. And that could change very quickly. And that's kind of the world that we live in. The contingency plans and just the number of them, the sheer number that the Big 12 has to go through, it's incredible at this point. Yeah, it is. You know, Bob Bowlesby called it limitless, and he said, yeah. you know, you know, we're going to have fallback positions, and we're going to have those fallback positions in place. I think he, like everybody else, would like football to start on time in late August, early September. But I would imagine that every conference is going to have, you know, a half dozen at least contingency plans in case A happens or B happens or C happens. You know, he's, he's worried about finishing the football season He's worried about, you know, frankly, starting and finishing the basketball season. I mean, yeah. we saw the basketball season go kaput at the Big 12 tournament. You know, he's worried that a basketball season that starts in November may not finish in March. So um, there's the there's the safety balances, and there's also the, you know, these conferences have to play these games because you're talking about the revenue that football generates helps everybody at the university. Uh, doing without that could do some of these schools, maybe not a, a Texas or an Oklahoma that some of these other schools irreparable harm. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, we've we've even heard that conferences might go away for this year because California, I think it was Governor Newsom, uh, he's basically said he doesn't see sports in 2020. Some of the teams, some of the ACC schools uh, in the northern footprint um, of the country, they don't think that there's going to be anything start until 2021. Can we do away with conferences, Matt? Might that be one of these, um, I don't know, solutions or plans on the drawing board? It might have to be because some of these schools are going to decide, you know, what they want to do on their own. For instance, I, I edit the College Football America yearbook, and we were having our meeting on Sunday. We firmly believe that there are at least a couple of conferences that are just going to say, you know what, we're not going to play football in 2020. You're talking about maybe the Ivy League. And I've heard nothing that leads me to believe the Ivy League won't play. But their mission's different than everybody else's. I can easily see them deciding, you know what, as a conference, we're not going to play football in 2020. I was actually checking the California Community College website just to see if, Maybe they've canceled college football for the JUCOs there across the board in 2020. They haven't done that yet. 
But if a school, say like Boston College, decides to not play football in 2020 in the ACC, then the ACC is going to have to adjust to that, and they're going to have to respect that decision. Uh, it impacts the ACC's revenue. It impacts Boston College's revenue. But I could definitely see some schools doing that. And if that happens, then maybe for this year and this year only, you think about regions. You know, mm-hmm. college basketball in the 1970s used to have what they called the ECAC, the East Coast Athletic Conference. And it was really just this amorphous group of 30 or 40 schools from like Syracuse and Providence all the way down to Washington and Lee. And they had to uh, reorganize in the late 1970s. That's why we had the Big East Conference. You could see something like that this year, basing it on regions, basing it on the teams who want to play. And those are the teams that compete for a championship this year. I feel like that's like plan O, <laughs> plan A through plan C, but that could be one of the solutions. Matt Poston joining us, Heartland College Sports. Matt, you know, uh, this would be the time we're wrapping up spring practice. You've kind of gone through that and then start to dig in deeper into these rosters, find out. I mean, how much work have you actually done on these teams because of the unknown? Is it almost a feel like an exercise in futility? I'm going to break down the two deep of Baylor, but I don't even know if they're going to play. Yeah, it, it is an exercise in futility to a certain degree. As we've thought about putting our book together this year, I mean, we, we have more than 900 college football teams in the book. And our decision was we're going to go ahead and work on our book as if there's going to be a 2020 football season. And if they make adjustments to what they're going to do, then we'll make adjustments to what we're going to do. And we're doing the same thing at Heartland College Sports. We're just following along like everybody else, doing our homework, you know, starting to prepare as if there's going to be a season. And then if they make an adjustment, you know, we'll make an adjustment to it. And I think that's kind of the way everybody is at this point. When we get to June, I think that's when decisions are going to start getting made. And that's when we'll have a more crystallized view of what's going to happen in the fall. I'm hoping for a football season, you know, just like we would expect any other year. But we all know the circumstances are unique, and we all know that um, safety is a more prevalent thing to think about uh, with everything that's going on in the world. And, you know, any football team that decides not to play in 2020, that's a decision that, you know, frankly, I would respect if you want to, you know, not risk your player's health in an overabundance of caution. You know, frankly, I'm okay with that. It's just you have to understand there are going to be financial ramifications to that decision for you and your university. Yeah, I'm convinced that the NFL is going to play asking uh, college athletes, uh, amateurs. That's a whole other ball game. Matt Postage, you can follow him on Twitter at Poston's Postcard. Uh, you can read him at Heartland College Sports and the Cowboys, as well as the Mavericks Maven site. Matt, as always, great information. Thanks for sliding in here this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem, guys. Good to talk to you. Matt Postons. Uh, joining the program, the regional football. Yeah, that's not happening. I don't know. That's not happening. I hope it's not the, happening. The Big Ten's just going to punt their money in the Big 12, in the ACC. Well, not they're going to punt their money, but they might have to share some of their money. Yeah, it might not all it. be there. I don't Better see than it. nothing. Well, yeah, sure, but I still think that it's going to be the conferences are not going to. Uh, let's help out. The... No, I don't know if they would willingly help out. I like to think that they would. No. Uh, and to that end, if they are going to do away with, say, a non-conference game, I hope that – who said it earlier? Uh, Doc said it earlier. And Iowa State scheduled to play UNLV. Mm-hmm. Eh, what about the Panthers? Right. That, that's the one that you punt. That, that's the one that you punt. Or mm-hmm. you replace that – and I don't know how it would mean, obviously, feasibility that is to do logistically, but um, – and I agree with Matt Postens. I think June is going to be a very telling month. Well, and think of the just the cancellation that we had a couple of years ago with South Dakota State and Iowa State. Right. And the cancellation. Who did Nebraska play? Akron. 
And after yes. it was trying and to get they, their money? Well, but they ended up playing. Did not, they not? I thought they ended up playing in October, didn't they? No. They didn't. They, so that game never got replayed. I thought they squeezed it in. And Akron was trying to get their money I for re- the guarantee. I do recall that. And how drawn out that would be. And if you make the decision, we are going to cancel this. And then yeah. you get into that. And that's and, and Iowa that, State replaced with Drake. Right. I thought Nebraska played. They might have played. Uh, did they play Akron? I thought they found a way later on in the year. Now you got me thinking, Trent Condon. And I don't even have my Phil Steele in front that you just flipped to. Yeah. We can get our Phil Steele this year. Well, I think like Heartland College Sports and everybody else, they've got to do it like there is going to be. I mean, it's a huge gamble, right? Right. It, to, to go to all that work and to, do you send it to, to, to print? Nebraska went 4-8 and eight that year. Uh-huh. Going through. Let's find the schedule. Oh, they replaced it with Bethune-Cookman. Oh, that's what they did. Okay. So the Akron game was wiped away. Bethune-Cookman. I'm guessing they beat Bethune-Cookman. 45-9. How about them Huskers? It's a big one. Did you see the guy on TikTok or whatever that godforsaken thing is? Uh-uh. The Husker fan doing his thing this weekend. Boy, he took a lot of ridicule. Um, yeah, you got to see it. I will. I'll, I'll certainly look that. Did, <clears throat> did you retweet it? No. No. no I, well, that wasn't retweetable for me. No. No, I'm out. What's it take to get a retweet from Ken Miller? I do a, I'll do a couple. I'm not a big tweeter if you follow me on Twitter. and Well, the, you're a big Twitter man. Yes. But you don't tweet. Correct. Often. Right. I don't want to be one of the dozens of people following Iowa and Iowa State to keep us updated on every time there's a score. Right, right. You don't, don't need that. And I try no, to stay away from that. No, I just, look, I appreciate what they're doing. I appreciate what they're doing. But, Commentary. Uh, right. I guess so. All right. Uh, we have to, we'll save this for later on the week because I want to spend more time than the two minutes or so we have left to talk about Alex Smith's uh, E60 on, on Friday night. Yeah. I got Trent. It, it looks like he, and I don't know. You know, wartime injury. You know, I don't think I've really seen one of E. Right. But boy, oh boy, his leg. If you saw it, you know what I mean. If you didn't, you can find pictures of it if you're so inclined. I wouldn't do it over lunch. <laughs> it was brutal. Boy, the fight that. I, I'm a fan of Alex Smith's for what he's gone through uh, and his family, quite frankly. Boy, his wife is a rock. Held it together. Anyways, uh, Murph and Andy today at two, the Fanatics at four, morning rush tomorrow at six. Thanks for being here. 1460 KXNO 106.3 FM.